Right, good morning, 9.30. We have a little energy today, we good? That didn't sound like it, all right, good. Well, I'll try and pep you up. I'll do my best, all right? If you're at home, we're so glad you're worshiping with us this morning. And uh, just a reminder, we are taking communion as part of our worship together today, be at the Lord's table. So if you uh, didn't get those elements on your way in, feel free to jump up at any point during the sermon and grab those. And if you're at home, uh, perhaps just a reminder to prepare those elements for the end of our time together. Turn with me to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2 is where we're going to be. We're in a series we are calling, Do You See What I See?, looking at the incarnation through the eyes of different people in the narrative of the birth of Jesus. But just before we get then into God's word, which I'm excited to just ponder with you today, I wanted to remind you about this prayer journey that we've been encouraging you to join with us. One of the things that's important during this season for us is that we be praying together as a body. And rather than calling us all together for prayer meetings, one of the ways we're trying to encourage you to pray with us is to pray with smaller groups, right? So to get a friend and to pray together once a week. And we're providing prompts for you to sort of guide you in your prayers together so that we all together collectively as a body are praying together even while dispersed. So just want to encourage you, if you haven't signed up for that, you can go on our website and sign up on the website to be part of that prayer journey. Get those emails or those text messages to remind you how to be praying together. Find a friend, a family member, uh, and also we can help you connect with someone to pray with if you don't have someone that you readily have identified that you could join in this prayer journey with. But what I'd love to do this morning is just by way of kind of reminding us that uh, just throughout the weeks of Advent, we're going to begin our time together before we dive into God's Word, just praying together for the things that, that are a part of that prayer journey. So this week, if you're part of the prayer journey, you're going to get a prompt to pray about a thankfulness for God's presence with us. In Advent, we reflect upon the fact that God became one of us and took on flesh, as we just sang about. And so we're just gonna pray this week together and give thanks for that, but then also pray for those who may be experiencing a lack of that sort of certainty uh, and comfort that comes from knowing that God has come to be with us. We're comforted by God with us. You remember, in Psalm 73, one of the things that always strikes me about that psalmist is he talks about sort of people who have rejected God and walked away from him and just sort of thumbing their nose at him and how they seem to be doing so well in life, and he's frustrated by that. And then the psalmist at the end says this beautiful thing. He says, but as for me... The nearness of God is my good. In other words, for him, he understands that to walk with God, regardless of the circumstances of his life, whether they be thriving or, or not so much thriving, that God being near to him is something he can count on as a good thing because he's walking with God. And, and that's a good reminder for us that Jesus has come to make the nearness of God our good. And so we're gonna pray this week together just to remember that and give thanks for it but also then to pray that God would draw others near to him, pray for folks by name that we know might be experiencing a season uh, of, uh, of a sense of disconnectedness rather than connectedness to the Lord and to others. So let's begin our time together and just pray together. Pray with me, don't just listen to me pray now. Let's pray together along those lines. So Father, just as we come to your word now, we're reminded that your word itself is an expression that you've come near to us. You've given us this word, the expression of who you are in your being. And so we pray that you would help us to, to rightly understand it and to walk in submission to it. We thank you, Jesus, that you obeyed the Father, submitted to the Father, and came into the world to die for us and to rise from the dead. And Father, we thank you for, in your love, sending the Son to us and the Spirit to us. We pray that you would help us to understand the implications of that. But before we even begin to ponder that, the first thing we say is thank you. Just thank you. We are grateful, and we would say eternally grateful, Father. We don't say that lightly. We will for all eternity 
not just in this life, but beyond it. Be grateful, be thankful for you and what you have done and for drawing near to us. We pray for those for whom that is not the case or those who you have drawn near to but perhaps are in a season of struggling to see hope, struggling to see comfort, struggling to see connection with you. Just two groups of people come to mind, Lord Jesus. I wanna pray specifically for those members of our community who are from another place but live here now and they're far from family in a season where I know they, I'm sure they'd love to be with family. Because of COVID, perhaps because of other reasons, they cannot be with their family in this season. And, and many of us will experience the same thing, not being with our family. Help that to remind us that there are, there are people among us in our community where we live, where you've planted us and sent us, for whom that's just a regular reality, to not be with their family to be far apart and perhaps to feel disconnected from the place they're from. And we pray that you draw them near to yourself. And we pray for our brothers and sisters who are on the mission field, who have said yes to your call upon their lives and gone to other places that are not their homes and they have sought to bring the gospel there. We pray that you'd give them favor, fruitfulness in their work. And we pray that in this season where they're probably not able to return home to be perhaps with family here, that you would nourish them watch over them, that you draw so near to them in such a tangible way that they would be comforted and filled with joy. We pray in Jesus' name, for his sake, amen. Amen. All right, friends, well, so I don't know if it was five, six years ago, there's a picture that just sort of showed up on the internet and it, it broke the internet, it made it go crazy. Do you guys remember this picture from several years ago? Anybody remember the dress? All right, this is, if you haven't seen this, Here's a little test for it. We're gonna do this together today. Uh, how many of you, when you look at this dress, see a dress that is white and gold? White and gold. Okay, quite a few of you. How many of you see a blue and black dress? Okay, I'm with you guys. Absolutely. So this has torn the nation apart more than any other debate. Right, not really. But this came out several years ago. And what was interesting was those who saw it as white and gold, when you see that as white and gold and you hear me say, I actually see blue and black when I look at that personally, for those of you who said white and gold, you can't fathom how I see blue and black, can you? Yeah, this happened in my family. We asked this question. I knew I was gonna show this picture today. I said to my family, my, my in-laws, my wife, I said, what do you see? My wife and my mother-in-law saw white and gold and could not fathom how we would see blue and black. My father-in-law and I saw blue and black, and we cannot fathom how you see white and gold. Right now, so I did a little research. It turns out that, well, first of all, the dress, do you wanna know what color it actually is? It's blue and black. The actual dress is blue and black. But that's beside the point here today. I just had to defend my position. That's all the, the reason I told you. Is I, you know, when you look at that, you can't possibly fathom. Well, some scientists did a little research and said the reason that shows up that way, and obviously the lighting kind of affects it and everything, but it's because of the way different people's, the cones in your eyes, the way they're adjusted, the way they operate, for some people it hits those cones and then speaks to your brain white and gold. And for others of us, it speaks blue and black. And that's why we have different perceptions as it pertains to that picture. Now here's the thing, as we have come into this Advent season and we're titling this sermon series, Do You See What I See? One of the, you're all still stuck on the picture. I can still see you out here. <laughs> one, of the, one of the realities is, it's helpful to see through someone else's eyes, but it can be hard to do that, right? It's helpful to see someone else's perspective. And as we look at the birth narrative of Jesus, we can see through the eyes of Mary and through the eyes of Joseph, and we can see through the eyes of today, we'll look at the shepherds, 
some, some, a somewhat familiar story, probably to many of us, but there's some aspects to it that I wonder if we've missed that help us really understand a perspective on the birth of Jesus that we perhaps need to see today. So remember that last week, if you were with us, we examined the birth of Jesus through the lens of, or through the eyes of Joseph, and we saw that for Joseph, the birth of Jesus, while it meant great joy, while it meant uh, a, a, a myriad of things, for Joseph, it also meant a surrender of his own plans for his own life to God's plans. And we saw that the same is true for us, that if God has come in the flesh in Jesus Christ, what that means is it no longer matters what our own plans are for our lives. Our plans don't matter anymore. All that matters is what part we play in God's plan. It's all that matters. What part do I play in God's plan? What part do you play in God's plan? The birth of Jesus declares to you, that's the primary question you should be asking, not what are my plans and will God anoint those plans or will he bless those plans, but rather, how do I join him in his plans? That's what Joseph showed us. And as we come to the shepherds this week, uh, what we're gonna see, I think, is there's, you know, I think there's a lot of things the shepherds teach us, but above them all, I think the unifying theme of the shepherds' perspective on the birth of Jesus is joy. That for the shepherds, the birth of Jesus meant an, a, a, an immense, strong joy and a joy that is stable, a joy that doesn't come and go with the circumstances of life. We could, we could do with a little joy this, in this season, yes? Do you agree? Yeah, I think so. And just as a little hint, by the way, the reason we went through the whole book of Philippians in the months preceding this Advent series is because it's an epistle, it's a letter that's all about joy, a Christ-centered life and how it brings joy. And so we've been trying to impart to you this joy. And my encouragement to you, friends, is, as I've been praying for you this week, as we look through the lens of the shepherds today, look through their eyes at the birth of Jesus, could I just encourage you? I know that for many of you, it's a tough season I mean, between COVID and family stuff and whatever else may be going on, I know there's a lot of difficulty. And the tendency is to just sort of see this a sermon on joy and to kind of dismiss it as, yeah, but Trent, you don't really understand my circumstances. Could I encourage you that the joy that the birth of Jesus has to offer is bigger than whatever your circumstances are? I just wanna encourage you in this season, I wanna fix your eyes on that joy. It's a strong joy and it's a stable joy. It's stronger than whatever is difficult in your life and it's more stable than those circumstances. It will stay with you, and I want you to see it and ponder it with me and determine to fix your eyes upon it throughout this entire Advent season, throughout this entire Advent month and the weeks ahead. Whatever comes, whatever your Christmas celebration's gonna look like this year, I'm sure different than in previous years, right? Whatever happens in your life over the next several weeks, I just wanna encourage you to see the birth of Jesus as a joy-giving thing, as a strong and stable joy-giving reality. So let's look together at Luke chapter two, verses eight through 20, and we're gonna see three things. Let me just tell them to you now, and then we'll revisit them and unpack each one. We'll see three things about the birth of Jesus. Number one, the birth of Jesus offers a joy that can kill fear, a fear-killing joy. Number two, we'll see that the birth of Jesus offers the joy of being included rather than excluded. And I'll explain what that means. And then the third thing that we'll see is that the birth of Jesus offers you the joy of rest. It offers you the joy of rest. So those three things, now as we look at Luke chapter two, beginning in verse eight, and we'll pick up reading there, it says this. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great, with great fear. And the angel said to them, fear not. 
For behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying God, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told to them. So as we look at this narrative, it's for a lot of us a familiar one. I want to see if I can't help you see it maybe through a little different eyes, uh, see some of the specifics of it that might be helpful. So as I said, we're going to look at three ways that the birth of Jesus offers a strong and stable joy. And the first is that the birth of Jesus offers a joy that can kill fear, a fear-killing joy. So the first thing you notice, perhaps, as you read through this is that the shepherds are afraid when the angel shows up. And as we read that, one of the things we might think is, well, they're afraid because this is an unusual circumstance, right? I mean, have you had an evening where an angel just appeared to you when you were out on the field? Probably not, right? And the shepherds have, but I would argue the text is pointing us to something other than just the unusual nature of the circumstances that are fear-inducing. Now, an angel in and of itself would be a frightening reality, a strong warrior of light, right, uh, an angel from on high now showing up in your presence is fear-inducing enough, but the scripture is actually pointing us to something else that's causing their fear, not just a visit from an angel. Look back with me, if you will, at verse 9. The angel shows up, and it says, and the angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. See, it's that sentence before, and they were filled with great fear, that's telling us the cause of their fear. It's the fact that the glory of the Lord has shown around them. Whenever you see that phrase in Scripture, the glory of the Lord, understand that what the Scriptures are saying there is that God has manifested his presence in a visible, tangible way. In other words, he has brought what the Old Testament calls his Shekinah glory, the glory of his very essence, to bear in this place and at this time. And so when the shepherds are afraid, they're not just afraid because there's an angel there. They're afraid because they are surrounded by the glory of the Lord. And the scriptures testify that to behold the glory of the Lord for a sinful human being is to be sentenced to death. If you remember Exodus chapter 33, verse 20, Moses says to the Lord, Lord, show me your glory. And what does the Lord do? He says, you cannot see my glory, for no man can see my face, my presence, the manifest glory of my nature. No one can see that and live. So you go into the cleft of the rock. I'll cover you with my hand. I'll pass by, and then you can peek your head out and look at my back as I'm moving away from you and disappearing. But that's as much as you get, because more than that would be too much for you. Remember Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah has a vision of the Lord's glory. And he says what? Woe is me, for I am a man of sinful lips. I live among a people of unclean lips. And I have seen the glory of the Lord. In other words, he thinks he's about to die. And the Lord does a purifying work to make him okay in that moment. A special dispensation of purification and grace. So that Isaiah doesn't die having beheld the glory of the Lord. 
Remember now, church, that the glory of the Lord is fear-inducing because the glory of the Lord is death for sinners. Now why and how, that's why the shepherds are afraid, how does the angel quiet their fear? What does he say to them to say, you don't have to be afraid? He doesn't just say, don't be afraid. He says this, follow me now, verse 10. Find my spot here, there we go, okay. The angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great what? Joy that will be for all the people. In other words, the news I'm about to bring you is so full of joy, so joy-inducing that that is what will put your fears to death. The joy of what I'm about to tell you is what is gonna kill your fear. Not just don't be afraid. Don't be afraid because of what I'm about to tell you is so joyful that your fear's about to die. And the news is the king is coming. Jesus has been born and the birth of Jesus, God in the flesh, Emmanuel, God with you, that message is what kills your fear. You have been separated from, he has come. In other words, he has now declared to us that the glory of God, the presence of God can go from being something that causes us to be destroyed to something that causes us to be transformed and changed forever and filled with joy. That's what he said. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, Paul commentating on this idea of the presence of the Lord. He's actually hearkening back to Moses and how Moses wore a veil, having just seen a part or a portion of, of the Lord's presence. And he was so full of glory and so shining with glory that people couldn't look on his face. And commentating on that, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3, verse 18, and we all now, unlike Moses, we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image, into the image of the Lord, from one degree of glory to another. Do you see what Paul is saying? He's saying that the birth of Jesus has made it so that all who would come to him and receive his righteousness, now instead of being destroyed by beholding the glory of the Lord, have access to that glory so that it transforms and changes them and shapes them into the image of the one they are beholding rather than being destroyed by that image. Yes, this is good news. Now here's the thing, friends. The message the angels are giving to the shepherds, whatever your other fears are, they are small in comparison to this great fear, the greatest fear of every human being always throughout all history without exception, and I don't make all those statements lightly, is to come into the presence of a holy God. That is the great problem that must be solved for every single person, wherever you are, wherever your background. Your greatest problem is that you will encounter a holy God one day and that holiness sentences you to death unless somebody does something to save you. The birth of Jesus is the birth of the one who has come to make the image of God beholdable for you. Is that joy-giving joy news? Whatever other thing that might cause fear in your life, your greatest fear has been put to rest. It's done. You don't have to be afraid of it anymore. You have been invited in to great news. Good news of great joy. That's what the angel is saying. And now any other lesser fear any other lesser fears put to death? When I, was, uh, when I was young, I used to go to the Rosemead Public Pool in Carrollton, Texas. And the Rosemead Public Pool had a five-meter platform. And I remember being maybe like 10 years old and going up on that five-meter platform. Anybody been on the five-meter platform? Not even a 10-meter. The five-meter scared me to death. 
right? But I'm there with my buddies, my friends. There's maybe some cute girls. Right around the time I'm starting to think girls are cute for the first time, and I'm thinking, I got to get up on that thing. I got to jump off of it, right? And some of my buddies were like really courageous, and they would dive off. I was like, there's no way. You're an idiot. I'm not diving, right? Because I'll over-rotate, land on my back. It's totally embarrassing. So, so I remember climbing up the ladder, getting up to the top, and you kind of do the whole, like, you look over the edge, you know, and you're like, oh, man, I shouldn't have looked over the edge. That's a bad idea. And so you're standing there, and you're just trying to summon the courage to jump because you're afraid. You're fearful. Well, now, fast forward, right? So eventually, I jump, but I'm afraid. Fast forward, what, 20 years now. On my 30th birthday, I went skydiving with some friends, but I decided it was a good idea, right? So, you know, this is, they strap you to some other dude, which is weird enough, Right? You're sitting in the plane on the bench, you shimmy down, you're, I don't remember how many thousands of feet in the air, and you look out of the plane and you think to yourself, I have made a huge mistake. This is an awful idea, right? And then you, 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 you're strapped in, it's too late now, right? So the guy goes, we're going, and then you're out, and you're going. And it, honestly, it was, one, it was one of my favorite experiences. I loved it. But here's the thing. Now imagine having jumped out of the plane, right, and you fall for thousands of feet, you pull the ripcord, parachute launches, and then it's just this beautiful, peaceful ride all the way to the ground. It's fantastic. You land, exhilaration, big rush, like, whew, that was awesome. Now imagine that immediately after that, I went back to the Rosemead Public Pool, and I climbed to that five-meter platform, and I looked at everyone and said, whoa, no way I can do that. When you've jumped out of a plane, is it hard to jump off a five-meter platform? No. Some of you are like, well, yeah, still a little bit, yeah. Go with me on my illustration here, okay, people? The point is, the five-meter platform doesn't look so scary when you've been 15,000 feet in the air and jumped out of a plane. You're like, this doesn't scare me anymore. And the same thing is true here. That's what the birth of Jesus is telling us. It's why the shepherds, they were afraid because the glory of the Lord shone around them. And the message of great joy is that the one who's come has come to make it so that you can encounter the very presence of God and not be put to death, but rather be transformed. And if that fear has been put to death, there's nothing else to be afraid of. There's nothing else to be afraid of. Now, friends, I don't mean to say that you won't experience fear from time to time. What I mean is that you shall not be conquered by fear. You shall not let fear dictate or rule you. When it comes to COVID, you shall not be ruled by fear. It's inappropriate for a believer to have their decisions ruled and dictated by fear. It's not the way we operate because our great fear has been taken from us and all lesser fears now can be taken as well. So friends, I wanna encourage you to ponder that. Now, I don't say that to mean that it's not appropriate to be cautious or concerned. Those are appropriate behaviors for believers, yes? Cautiousness and concern are wise, they're good, they're different than being ruled by fear. They are different than being ruled by fear. So don't hear me say that being cautious is being fearful, no. But can I just give you two things? Like, and, and not just with COVID, it could be with the political arena nowadays. It could be with any stuff going on in your family, division or, or struggle or strife or uh, you know, job loss. It could, be, it could be any number of things. Often I find that when I say, hey, don't be ruled by fear, often the pushback is you don't understand my circumstance. And I just wanna say to you, if God has arrested the great fear, the thing that is most fear-inducing, then he can put to death all the other fears. And the birth of Jesus is a declaration that he can do that. Now, you also need to probably understand, let me just take two seconds on this. How do I know if I've gone from being cautious and concerned, which are appropriate, to being ruled by fear? How do I, how do I determine that? And I'll just give you two indicators that I have found again and again to be true in my own life and in the lives of others. 
often if I find myself angry, that's an indicator that I have moved from caution or concern about whatever the thing is. I have moved from that to perhaps being ruled by fear in such a way that it's causing anger in me. If you find that, I just want to encourage you as your pastor, just allow the Lord to search your heart in that. Don't just assume that you're appropriately angry. Ask if that anger is being born out of fear. It's a question you, you need to ask. I can't d- tell you if it is or if it isn't, but the Lord can show you, and he will if you'll ask him. The other is this sort of um, sense of being so despondent or so distraught that you can't move forward in any way. So some, for some, moving from appropriate concern and appropriate caution to being ruled by fear is indicated by anger. For others, it's ruled by a complete despondency an inability to move forward. Maybe there's an issue in your family life, a, you know, a, a, an issue where you're just, you're so discouraged by something with your children or something with your parents or a sibling or, a, you know, whoever it may be, and that you're unable to, to move forward, to gain traction, or perhaps, you know, find any way to keep operating the things God has called you to. And if that's the case, perhaps there's an inappropriate way that fear is beginning to rule in your heart. Go back to the birth of Jesus. It's a declaration that he has come to put your fear to death. And he's done it, not just by saying, stop being afraid, but he's done it by saying, I've done something that can give you so much joy that is so stable and that is so strong that it can be there and put any fear that tries to come into you, tries to attack your mind, tries to enter into your heart. It can take any of it and swallow it up because it is stronger and more stable than anything that brings fear. You with me, church? Okay, second thing, second thing that we see here is that the birth of Jesus offers the joy of being included. Now, I love this about the story of the shepherds. We gotta kind of back up and ask ourselves the question, why is God even doing this? Like, why does God choose to announce the birth of Jesus to a group of shepherds in a field outside of Bethlehem? Have you ever asked that question? You know, last week, as we looked at the narrative uh, of Joseph, we saw that a lot of the things that happened happened because they were fulfilling prophecies in the Old Testament, right? So he's going to Egypt because Hosea chapter 11, verse 1, is prophesied that that's what needed to happen. He's raised in Nazareth because the Old Testament alluded to that as part of the Savior's background. And so therefore, that needed to happen. And so we see all these ways that really almost as we read the text, it felt like, oh, these are necessary things. Like God planned them and then they needed to come about. Why did he need to announce to shepherds the birth of his son in a field outside of Bethlehem? I mean, so one possibility, right? He's just a really excited dad, right? He's just a proud dad who can't help but want to announce the birth of his kid. He's running out of the delivery room. It's a boy, right? That's one possibility. And certainly God is excited about the birth of his son whom he sent into the world. Some scholars ponder that perhaps it's because shepherds represented sort of the worst or the most sinful of the people, right? Their work would have made them ceremonially unclean according to Old Testament law. And so some scholars have pondered that perhaps that's what was going on is God is saying, I I can save the worst no matter where you come from. I don't think that's accurate. Other scholars I would more agree with because in the Old Testament, you see shepherd is used positively too often. I think to think that they represent sort of the worst of the people. We find that David's a shepherd. We find that there's, an expe- there's a use of shepherding as a positive metaphor again and again, both in the Old and New Testaments. So here's what I think is most likely as to why God is choosing to pronounce, make this pronouncement to a group of shepherds. It's probably because they are the least esteemed among the people. They are of the lowest status, the lowest stature, And therefore, to proclaim to this group of shepherds, 
the birth of, of Jesus is to say he has come not just for those who sit in palaces of privilege, but he's come for the lowest. He's come for the least. He's come for, and for everyone in between, right? So look with me at the text. Let's see where we see this. The first thing we see in verse nine is the angel Lord shines around them and they were filled with great fear. And then verse 10, the angel Lord said, fear not for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for who? For all the people. Now here in particular, it means all the people of Israel. That's who the angel is talking about there. Later in chapter two, we're gonna see that the Gentiles are included as well when Simeon starts talking about why the savior has come, that he's for the Gentiles, not just for the Jews. But here the angels are really talking about the people of Israel. And he's saying, it's not just for the highest, it's for the lowest. He's for all the people. That's the declaration. Then look at this. After he says, will be for all the people, verse 11, he says, for unto you is born this day. That's an interesting phrase. When Amanda and I had our kids, I didn't run out of the delivery room into the waiting room to see our family and say, unto you is born. I said, unto me is born. Right, this is my child and Amanda's child. So it's not really born unto you, he's born unto me. But God here does something very different. He declares unto you shepherds and all people, unto you is born. In other words, this child is for you. Come for you. What good news. Unto you is born. And then the second, the, the third thing, and the shepherds had to marvel at that. Wait, this child is born to us, these lowly shepherds sitting, we don't know this family, we don't know who this is. And you're saying unto us is born. And then to take it even further, he goes on in verse 12 and he says, and this will be a sign for you. Why does he give them a sign? Because he's inviting them to come to where the baby is. He's saying, this will be a sign for you. You will find uh, a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger, right? He's saying, go to Bethlehem. You're invited to come and see the Savior. You're invited to come and see him. Not only am I declaring it to you, I'm inviting you to come and see. And then the final step of sort of being included, right, is the shepherds, this would be absolutely uh, mind-changing for them that the angel declares that, they are, that the child is born unto them. It's for all the people, not just for the highest in stature. And then they're invited to come and see. And then it says that they went their way and basically told everyone what they had seen. In other words, now they're not only the ones who get to witness it, they're the, get, they're the ones that get to bear witness to it. They become the first evangelists. They become the ones who go tell it on the mountain, right? They become the ones who declare God has come in the flesh and everyone that they talk to wonders. Notice they return to being shepherds, it says, but now they return to being shepherds with a completely different way of being shepherds. Their work has changed forever now. They're ones with the message of the birth of the, the Savior on their lips. Now, let's just go a little bit further here. Um, the shepherds who were not included in the plans and the positions of power of their people are now told that they are included in God's plan. So friends, think about this with me. If you're a believer, your follower of Jesus, who feels often overlooked or forgotten, the birth of Jesus reminds you that you are included in the plans of God. When I talk about the birth of Jesus, meaning that you're included, it doesn't mean that everyone will experience, experience the saving, redemptive work of Jesus. But what it does mean is that no matter what station of life you're from, no matter what your background is, no matter you know, what people group you're from, there is, no, there is no group of people that are excluded from the good news of Jesus. It's not just for the high, it's for the low. And that's an important thing to remember as we, as we reflect upon the good news of the birth of Jesus. 
I don't know if we can remember sometimes. We, I mean, we, we sort of live in a society where I think because, uh, praise God, we live in a democracy and we have a lot of advantages related to that. I don't know that we always experience what it's like to feel excluded. Um, I mean, we do in certain ways, but we sort of have a participation where it's, we're not likely to always think about ourselves as sort of low in stature. Most in our cultural context think of ourselves as either sort of high or medium in stature. But I want you to understand that throughout the history of the world, for most people, a declaration that the people who are of the lowest station in life, for them to be included in the plans of God would have been absolutely revolutionary. Right? That exists still today in India when you see brothers and sisters from a, from a low caste in society. For them to be considered worthy of being participants in the work of God in the world is an absolutely life-altering reality for them when they hear the gospel. Because they've been told their whole lives, you're from this caste of people, you will never rise to any station in life that is worthwhile. You will never be able to overcome the status of your birth. Now you and I, we don't experience that as much, but for a great portion of the world, the class you're born into and the status you're born into is what determines your purpose in life. It's what determines what your life amounts to. And for Jesus to come into the world and for the first words to be to those who are of the lowest stature in their society is a declaration that God is turning things on their heads. And that is good news. Now, the second thing I wanna encourage you in, believers, like if you, if you have felt like you've experienced this exclusion rather than inclusion, just remember with me, would you please, that the birth of Jesus means that you have been included in the redemptive work of God. No exclusion you could experience is better than that, is more important than that. When I was, my high school had just the absolute most awful way of, of announcing who made the cheerleading squad. I mean, something as silly as making the cheerleading squad, right? For basketball, we posted a list. You walked in, saw I'm on the list, I'm not on the list, and then you could quietly slip out. Do you wanna know how they announced who made cheerleader? This is the worst thing I've ever witnessed, right? They would invite the entire student body to come to the gym. Hundreds of us gather in the gym. They would take all the girls who tried out for cheerleader and march them into the gym, sit them down on the gym floor, and then proceed to do skits to to work in the names of the girls who had made the cheerleading squad. So after those 10 that made it, or however many it was, I don't remember anymore, after those 10 that made it, there's like 40 girls sitting on the gym floor bawling because they have been excluded rather than included and excluded in a very public way. That's terrible, isn't it? Whoever came up with that idea, worst idea ever, right? Being excluded is painful. Jesus has declared, whatever exclusion you may experience, you have been included in my plans. That's the, birth, the joy of the birth of Jesus. One of the joys is the joy of being included. Now let's turn to the third thing here. The birth of Jesus offers the joy of rest. The birth of Jesus offers the joy of rest. Have you ever, you know what one of the best feelings is? Have you ever had such a long day that like the best feeling in the world is to climb into bed at the end of the day? That's such a good feeling. I remember going on the worst, stupidest road trip ever in college. It was a Thursday night, 10 p.m., and for some reason, some friends of mine and I decided we wanted to drive to Austin, which was two hours away from College Station. So we got in the car, drove two hours. Within the first hour, the friends in the back seat fell asleep. I'm driving. One friend is still awake. We get to the state capitol in Austin, which apparently, for some reason, was our destination. We got out. We looked around. The two friends in the back didn't even bother to wake up. They stayed asleep. 
Then we proceeded to go to Denny's because it was 24 hours, eat, and drive back. And five minutes into the drive back, my buddy in the front seat falls asleep. So now I'm all by myself for an hour and 55 minutes driving. It was the worst. I had to keep slapping him to keep myself, you have to stay up with me. Keep me awake. I was so tired. I was bone tired by the time we got back, about 2 or 3 a.m. I don't even remember what time it was. 2, 3 a.m. in the morning. Walk into my dorm room. I can still remember the feeling of climbing into bed. I mean, like, oh. The joy of rest, right? The joy of rest at times when we're exhausted and spent. And I'm sure that in this season, for many of you, it will be a season of feeling exhausted and spent. Can I show you how the birth of Jesus brings you rest? A rest that can give you a stable and strong joy. Look with me again at, uh, at verse 10. Actually, verse 11, sorry. In verse 11, here's what we find. The angel says, for unto you is born this day in the city of David, and we read past this now, these three terms, a savior who is Christ the Lord. Let me tell you what those three terms mean because you could summarize those by saying that what the angel is saying to the shepherds is all your work to try and get approved by God and have his favor and to get loved by him, all of that is put to rest now. You don't have to do it anymore because this one who has come has come to be savior, Christ, and Lord. To be a savior is to be one who rescues, one who's come to rescue you from whatever trouble you're in. And the, the shepherds probably would have understand that, understood that salvation a little differently than how we now know Jesus came to save. But regardless of how they understood it, they would have known that what the angel was saying is, he's come to rescue you. He's come to rescue you from trouble. That's what it means to be a savior. The second thing is that he says he's come to be Christ. Well, the Christ was, is the anointed one, the one chosen and favored by God the one whom God has put his stamp of approval on, the one whom God has said, this one is mine. He has come to represent me. So not only have they come to be saved, they've come to be saved by one who is approved by God, fully approved by God. And he is the Lord. And the Lord is the one who possesses all power, who is omnipotent and strong. It's a hint that what he's saying is this is not just a human savior, but this is God in the flesh the Lord. We're going to find that phrase again and again in the New Testament. Jesus Christ, the Lord. Jesus Christ, the Lord. He is Christ, the Lord. In other words, what they're saying is he is more than human. He is one that possesses all power and all wisdom. So what he said, what he's saying is he has come to save you, to give you rest, and he can do it because he's anointed by God to do it, and he is the Lord who possesses the power to be able to do it. Are you with me? Does that make sense? This isn't just a, a like, randomly chosen words that the angels speak here. This is Christ, he is Savior, and he is the Lord, and he has come to give you rest. So friends, remember that Jesus is your rest. And can I give you one encouragement here before we come to the Lord's table? My encouragement to you is this, in this season, often we run ourselves ragged during Advent, during the month of December. Could I encourage you that you need to schedule rest? Because if you're gonna remember that Jesus has come to be your rest, then you need to figure out how to take some rest. So perhaps one of the gifts of this season, maybe we can't travel as broadly, we can't be with as many people, maybe this will be a season where you can be intentional about taking rest so that you would remember that the joy that you need to be in your life, to be a stable joy and a strong joy will come in more abundance as you rest in Christ that you have to rest in him by taking time. Take an extra 15 minutes in the word and in prayer each morning. Take time to say, we're not turning on a screen. We're gonna sit. I'm gonna go for a walk. I'm gonna be quiet. 
I'm gonna be still because I need to remember that this Jesus who came into the world that we're remembering in this Advent season has come to bring rest to my soul. I no longer am an adversary of God. I'm at peace and at rest. Just being intentional about experiencing that. So now we come to the Lord's table, friends, and as we come, take your elements. If you're at home, you can grab your elements as we hope you prepared them. Every time we come to the Lord's table, I remind us of this, whether you're home or whether you're here, we just encourage you, if you are a follower of Jesus, whether this church is your church home or not, you are invited to this table. We come to remember the sacrifice of Jesus. We've reflected now on his birth, we reflect now on his cross and his death and the payment for sin that was made by this death. If you haven't placed your faith in Christ, we'll just invite you to let these elements pass by you or to not partake of them now today because we wouldn't want you to declare with your actions something you haven't yet believed, something you haven't yet given, uh, given uh, accreditation to. So we'll just encourage you to use this time to ponder the work of Christ and how he's, we believe, drawing you to himself. But if you're in Christ, if you're a follower of his, this table is for you. But we don't come lightly. We come now to ponder and consider our lives before the Lord, to lay them before him and to say, Lord, search me and know me. See if there be any hurtful way in me. Examine my heart. If there's a place where I'm in need of repentance, if there's a place where I'm in need of confession, of change, show it to me. I commit myself to walk in that change with you by the power and the strength that you would give to move towards repentance. If there's an unreconciled relationship that I need to do a work in so that reconciliation can happen, I will do it. I commit myself to do it, whatever it may be. So let's take time now to ponder that before the Lord, just to lay our lives before him for a moment here, and then we'll partake of the elements together. Let's pray 